Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of the Citizen Dave podcast, the podcast devoted to garbage people, feminism, movies, everything here, there, and in between. I am Kristen Lopez here once again with Karen Peterson. Hi. I almost called her Kimberly Peterson, Kimberly Pierce. <laughs> We're all merging together. Our I was going to say, it's all combining. the shimmer, yes. Uh, Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And we have uh, some uh, some fun, interesting stuff this week. We have some games, some discussions, some news, trailers, and we'll be talking about Annihilation. So let's dive into this. Um, let's get some news out of the way because I think everything else is going to take just slightly longer to do that. But we talked about Black Panther last week. We talked quite a bit about Black Panther because most of this news is actually from the last episode. Um, <laughs> but... It actually did what Karen predicted. It shattered the expectations that people had box office-wise. Karen, do you, I don't know, to put you on the spot, mm-hmm. what were the box office numbers uh, for Black Panther opening weekend? Okay, so it, in the first three days, ended up at $201 million in the U.S. alone, which is exactly what I said was going to happen. Everyone's saying, oh, like 160, 170. A few people bumped it up to 185 because of big Friday numbers. And I was like, no way. This movie's going to make 200. And it did it. I was so excited. I can I tell you, I right. saw this. <laughs> I saw this twice in a 24-hour period. I went su- Sunday and I went Monday. A and... lot of people did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's in so a- good. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I know. I want to see it again. Um, in addition, it also made like two hundred and sixty in the first couple of days world or like internationally. So it was already at like half a billion dollars by the end of the weekend. Um, it is the number one for a single day mon- Monday. No movie has ever made more money on a Monday. Mm-hmm than Black Panther did. It is number nine for top movies of the last 365 days. And that is like it comparing, it's only been out for a week, comparing to movies that were out for months. So number nine, that's not bad. When I heard that it was fa- the fastest Marvel movie, the most successful Marvel movie in its first week, it passed Avengers it did. by a few million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, over the weekend, it was the second highest opening for a Marvel movie, but it, yeah, it's already outpaced Avengers. It is the number one movie for President's Day weekend openers. It is the number, it was the fifth highest opening weekend ever, and the other ones, the ones above it are the Star Wars movies, uh, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and then also Jurassic World and the Avengers, so... With the exception of one nice company to be in. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> and Lauren just saw it, finally, because we, we were kind of tiptoeing on eggshells in the last episode because we didn't want to spoil anything. But Lauren did see it. Yay! Yay. Well, yes, hopefully yay. What did she think Yeah, of it? what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did get to see it. I, I, I really liked it. I think I probably wasn't quite as hot on it as some of you guys were. 
Boo. Um, No, I like it. So, (laughs) caveat. (laughs) I I really enjoyed it. It, I think it and Thor Ragnarok are probably the two Marvel films that I've had the most fun in, just sitting there watching it. I I love the political message. Um, I loved the cast. The cast is spectacular. Uh, the the issues that I had with it were really I, I agreed. I, someone said last week that the um, the first act drags, and I think that that's true. And I know that there's a lot of world building. You have to introduce a lot of characters that we've never met before. We have to you know kind of establish the whole setup of everything. But there were moments where I was just like, can we get to whatever the plot is going to be, um, or is it just going to be like the is the entire film going to be about him becoming king of Wakanda, which it's not. Um, so there was that. I. I wanted more of Killmonger. Well, everybody wants more. As of we all did, yes. <laughs> but I wanted more of his like character development because you get like that that first scene, which is such a great scene. In um, it's not the British Museum, but it's basically the British Museum, and then he kind of disappears for the most part. While we're going back to Wakanda, and we're kind of introducing all of the. Um, other characters and dealing with the succession and stuff like that. And I wanted, I think I wanted more of Killmonger's backstory. I wanted a little bit more parallelism between the two, between him and uh, T'Challa so that we actually saw where he was coming from because when we finally get to him, we're just like, okay, he's a soldier. He is, you know, he's related to T'Challa. He's got all of these things going on but we ne- but because we never saw that develop and saw what he had gone through as both as a child and then as a young man and as going you know becoming this becoming a soldier and seeing imperialism firsthand i felt like he he lost something in that and so when we actually get to the conflict between them it's not as well established you you see more where t'challa is coming from than you do with him and I, I just wanted more of him. I wanted it to be more about him and less about, you know, Andy Serkis and that whole throwaway plot, which felt like it was just wrapping up things that had happened in other Avengers films. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I liked it. And I, I, I said this on our Slack, and I'm going to say it again. When there's one scene where M'Baku comes on and both me and my friend were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we were just... It, it was marvelous. I mean, it's a it's a great film. It's one of the best Marvel films I've seen, and it's incredibly important. And it was so it was so nice seeing a bunch of not white people mm-hmm. on the screen constantly and being awesome. I loved the women. The women were the best part of the film. Uh, so there's there's so much that's good about it. So I just I I think that that's why I wanted a little bit more of certain things. I was like, this is this is so good, and it could be even better. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Uh-oh. I'm I'm okay, okay with this. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. I, I'm glad that we don't have to do what film Twitter does, which is immediately call more and racist for not not loving it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, as you do. So, uh, yeah, Black Panther doing great in the theater. So, if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have seen it, do like me and see it more than once because it's worth it. Um, let's let's play a game inspired by that. Uh, by the way. <laughs> Karen, you actually came up with this, so well, no, why don't I, well, you? I sort of adapted. Well, you it you from... kind of co-opted, you appropriated <laughs> it. Okay, I, let's just. 
I did. So there's an article that came out in Vulture this week that was uh, all about Shuri and how awesome she is and how she gets to have the best lines in Black Panther because she totally does and she's great. Anyway, so in this Vulture article, they had like, they took Shuri lines out of context and put them into a different context to like describe some other situation. So I thought it'd be fun if we did the same thing. So here are some examples from the article. When scrolling through Tinder, opening your DMs, or when a Martin Freeman lookalike approaches you at the bar, great, another broken white boy for us to fix. <laughs> so that's an example. So I thought it'd be fun if we each pick a line and then choose a situation to apply it to. So, But Kristen, you said that you had one already that you thought of. Well, yeah, because I was, uh, and I actually said this during the movie because I had my, my wonderfully legendary Twitter incident uh, with reserve seating and the handicap section and talking to Cinemark's legal department and kind of shaking my head at them and their response that they don't need to do anything about handicap seating because it's good enough. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, when a movie theater's legal department says they only have to offer three handicap seats because that's legally the mandate, just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. <laughs> <laughs> and I honestly thought about using that line with this person at Cinemark Legal, and I did not think they had seen Black Panther, so I figured it would probably go over their head. <laughs> that's funny because I was actually going to use the same line for a different situation which is every time I see a movie that's just okay yes <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah uh Lauren Kimberly do you have any I actually used a oh, great another broken white boy for us to fix I I've actually used that this week in both a dating context and it works so. Ooh, tell us tell us <laughs> oh that um the, the dating cons, you know, the dating, it just matches up for itself. It you does, know, you, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's short of diving into too many details on that. And in a, in a human resources position, you know, there's, in a retail dealing with teenagers, there's plenty of opportunities to use that as well. Yeah. It's true. I have a feeling I have a feeling that that's just a ubiquitous line because as soon as I saw that I was just like every interaction I ever had with a dude on Twitter. Like, <laughs> yes. that's, that's just the first line. Great another broken white boy for us to fix. It's so <laughs> true. So <laughs> true. Oh my gosh. Exactly. We could actually yeah. make that a tagline for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just and, and the fact is it almost always is broken white boys like it's not even it's just like this is just like what's going on i don't know why it's so true we love you bob in marketing but <laughs> yes um well i will throw out this is a, this is a actually really good transition because let's switch to something that apparently white boys or really just men in general don't seem to understand which is a little something called the gaze um so Brett Easton Ellis, author of American Psycho and Less Than Zero, um, was doing a interview. Does anybody have his actual quote? Because we all know how important it is to quote these men's buffoonery accurately. I will pull it up right now. Yeah, I was trying to remember when it was from, too. I, I saw it on Anna Biller's Twitter. Sexist quote of the day by Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> I love that there's one... <laughs> Let's see. I think this is, it's on Jezebel. I think this is it. Okay. Oh my lord. They literally have a 
sexist quote like they have multiple here's here's one on IndieWire from 2012 Catherine Bigelow would be considered a mildly interesting filmmaker if she was a man but since she's a very hot woman she's really overrated oh my god okay so I found I found it I found it okay so Brett Easton Ellis director of uh no writer writer excuse me writer of fantastic stories about privileged white men including American Psycho and less than zero uh, is getting some flack because of statements that he made uh, about eight years ago in 2010 that are coming back to haunt him. Because yes, people, the internet is written in ink, as Rudy Mara said in the social network. Shit doesn't go away just because you think that it's not on somebody's Twitter feed anymore. But supposedly, uh, he did. There, there was an interview going on that he did with um, Kyle Buchanan about women directors that he had done back in 2010. And he said, Brett Easton Ellis essentially said, he doesn't think women can direct, except for directors like Andrea Arnold, Catherine Bigelow, or Sofia Coppola, um, because he thinks that film requires the male gaze. And he says, quote, and when asked what would that be, he said, quote, we're watching and we're aroused by looking, whereas I don't think women respond that way to films just because of how they're built. And then Kyle Buchanan said, you don't think they have an over level of arousal? And he says, quote, they have one that's not so stimulated by the visual. I think to a degree, all the women I named aren't particularly visual directors. Is there a reason that there isn't a female Hitchcock or a female Scorsese or a female Spielberg? I don't know. I think it's a medium that really is built for the male gaze and the male sensibility. So let's talk about that. Well, I mean, he's not wrong because it's a society that was built by men that wouldn't allow women in. That's true. There is. There That's is the only part of that that makes him right. Get work. Exactly. Well, and why yeah. does every woman have to be the female equivalent? Touche. Of, mm-hmm. of yeah, of another ma- like male director. Well, it's so, like all the people that were saying Ryan Coogler is the new Spielberg. Why can't Ryan Coogler just be Ryan Coogler? Yeah, I hate to use <laughs> yeah. the quote because it's so trite, but why can't he just be the best Ryan Coogler he could be? Okay, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why? Um, there's, there's become this like Highlander mentality that we that every director, every actor, every film has to be replaced by the next one. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like it's very weird. And, yeah. and I want to point out the. The directors that he names that are, he claims, good female directors. And he and they asked him, you know, not Mary Heron, who directed the adaptation of, of uh, Ellis's book, of American your Psycho. your book, yeah. And he says, Mary Heron, to degree, there's something about the medium of film itself that I think requires the male gaze. So I thought it was hilarious he brought up Andrea Arnold and Sofia Coppola and even Mary Heron, because those films are very female gazy about desire and about arousal i mean you watch a fish tank is one of my favorite movies and you watch how michael fassbender is introduced in that movie it is all about gaze and about you know being stimulated by him and, and watching how the camera looks at him um sophia coppola i think can make a, a male look just as intoxicating as a Balmain dress if you watch you know the bling ring that is all about gaze and and about making objects as as sexually exciting as as a dude which is why watching the beguiled I think right after is so funny because really the man is elevated to the same status as a pair of shoes so I think I I think he's completely missing the point (laughs) 
Well, and he's he's also co-opting a phrase that was originally introduced in like the in the nineteen seventies. Seventy six. Yeah, by by Laura Mulvey that was about criticizing a particular mode of filmmaking and a particular kind of voyeurism in filmmaking that treats women as objects. And and that's and 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 it's very it's a very complicated concept. So he's what's even more insulting about all of this is that he's taking this kind of seminal feminist film theory work that is incredibly important in the development of feminist film theory and he's being like, "Well, that's all that there is. There's only male gaze. That's all that exists." And and that's been parroted a lot uh, of being like, "Well, all film is male gaze." No, that's not true. You know, and it's interesting that this particular, the reason why this interview is coming up again is the first time that when I saw it again was on um, the director Anna Biller's Twitter. Uh, she's the director of The Love Witch and Viva, and I think she's now preparing a film about Bluebeard. And her, some of the things that she's, that you know, male critics particularly have latched onto about her is that, you know, oh, she makes these exploitation films. And, and she's parroting Russ Meyer. And, which, and her point was like, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually kind of co-opting those, those sorts of images and transforming it into the female gaze and like presenting different modes of looking and different ways of looking at both women and men and just at film in general. Uh, finally, the whole, the whole idea that like, oh, the, it's a visual the the idea that oh they're not very visual filmmakers that's what filmmaking is mm -hmm. filmmaking is visual first and foremost i mean it's also narrative it's also oral there are all kinds of things but one of the the first things that we talk about when we talk about filmmaking is the visual component the image so if you have a female director no matter what she is going to be a visual filmmaker well, and, and it brings up a, a conversation I shared with you guys while it was happening that happened with a colleague, a male colleague on Facebook, who was, was quote unquote, asking, he wasn't, he was just asking for validation, um, who was wondering why women could, quote unquote, lust and talk about how hot Michael B. Jordan was in Black Panther, but when men do it about Jennifer Lawrence in Red Sparrow, it's not okay. And I was sitting there thinking, who is telling you it's not okay? You know, what are you saying that somebody's actually like censoring? We're not saying you can't do it. We're saying that you need to understand how the countless centuries of male co-opting of female bodies, we expect you to do that. And we would Men hope that in this like time years. period of enlightenment that you would know that it's inappropriate. <laughs> Yeah, there are two things that I, I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation. First of all, one, I want to say, just to be fair, I did pull up his Brett Easton Ellis' Twitter, and the top tweet on there, he said, he, he quoted the interview that we're actually referring to, and he says that this was, he drunkenly went on a dumb provocative rant, which he's dismantled many times on the B podcast, so... He's disavowing what he said, but still, the problem is not even so much that he said this or an attack on him. It's the fact that a lot of men see it this way, yeah, and right. I think that a big part of the reason for that is, I mean, look at what men, like, if you if you listen to them talk or whatever, like, there's this weird fantasy about wanting virgins, and it's like, 
that's how they see women. That's how they see good women is virginal and pure. And so they, they just try to convince themselves that women don't have that same outlook on them, you know, on men as they do on women and that we don't want to see that we don't look at men or, I mean, listen to our last podcast to know right. that that is totally well, not true. And I was, I was going to say, Lauren and I were actually trying, you know, Lauren was kind of like helping me kind of come up with things to say to this guy because I was approaching it from a film perspective. He wanted to approach it from why can't I as an audience member say that Jennifer Lawrence is hot? We're saying you can, I, I'm not saying you can't say Jennifer Lawrence is hot. She is beautiful. I'm saying that if you want to post a picture of her and talk about her tits for the entire tweet, you're really missing the point. We're, you're doing what has been ingrained for countless centuries of men being able to freely and safely express their sexuality and their co-opting of female bodies. I, and I was using a film perspective from this, which he was not. And I told him, I'm like, look at how Black Panther is filmed. Michael B. Jordan's character is presented as this powerful dominant figure yes the audience response from women is that he is attractive as hell but the movie is never stopping to like gaze on his body and sell that to women that is coming off as just a natural appreciation of like how enticing he is um something like red sparrow the movie's very existence and i have seen it the movie, the entire reason for its being is to sell Jennifer Lawrence's body to you as a sexual object, to the male audience. There is nothing in this movie that is selling her as strong, as empowering. It is the, the way the camera views her, the way other characters view her, and how that in turn is being sold to the audience is all to make you see her as a fuck object. I mean, it's, she's whack off material. And I was like, if you think that's okay, and you can acknowledge that that exists, nobody's censoring your right to say that she is, you know, hot. What we're saying is that you need to acknowledge that you are buying a, a product, that you are buying a bill of goods that is being explicitly made for you to say she's hot. And he didn't really get that. He just kind of kept selectively like pointing out like, well, what about Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman is another example. Wonder Woman is never, the camera is never trying to shoot up her skirt or sell you this concept that she is an object that you should also, it's the whole, I'm in, I'm well, compare on. Wonder Woman to Wonder Woman in Justice League. Yeah. Thank you. I was just going to yeah. jump in and say that because that can shows you that the com comparison between Patty Jenkins's Wonder Woman and the depiction of Wonder Woman in Justice League shows you just how big a difference the, and how big the perspective of the gays can make. You have a powerful, you know, Jenkins's character is completely neutral when dealing with it. While in Justice League, the first shot of Wonder Woman's practically an upskirt going up her leg. I can think of another shot where it's focused on her ass while she's having a conversation with another character. Mm -hmm. Right. And, well, and it's, it's, it's disgusting. A it's a difference between a female character being an object and a female character being a subject. Right. And and I think that that's, that, that really is, like, in the most simplistic way, that really is the difference. That Wonder Woman in, in, um, in Patty Jenkins's version is very much a subject. She is the subject of the film she's the subject of her own story she's not being looked at as like this is something that we that she is there for us to consume 
And and so saying like, oh, Gal Gadot is hot. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Like we could talk about that all the time. She is incredibly hot. But that's not the point. And and what's more, it's all, I think I think that's also about the way that the male characters within the film look at her, mm-hmm. um, and treat her, and the way that they look at her and treat her is not. They are. They definitely notice that she is a beautiful woman, and they comment on that. But that is not the sole way that they relate to her. And it's you know it's difficult because Hollywood has been for so long the subject of the male gaze. And we've talked about that in that context for so long. So talking about what is the female gaze? What does it look like? How do we understand it? I, I do think that it comes down to objectivity and subjectivity. The, you know, And we talk about objectification. That's what they're doing to Jennifer Lawrence and Red Sparrow. That's what's being done. That's what's being done to Black Widow in The Avengers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that way of looking at her, and now she undercuts that in some ways. Um, but that way of looking at her as something that the male that is there to arouse the male viewer, period, and that doesn't happen a great deal in um, film in regards to men. Yeah, and and I think it it goes back to you know this this person was talking about how you know he wanted to focus more on just audience response, not film presentation and I was like no you can't it's a dialectic film influences culture culture influences film and you can't have one in isolation because again it's being sold to you as something and you know this this person tried to say that he understood the male gaze and I was like okay well then why are we having this discussion we shouldn't be having this discussion if you understand the point that I'm I'm trying to make here and really I think what it comes down to is is that men have been like woohooing catcalling women for countless countless millennia when women start doing it it's a problem like men automatically think well shit we can't we got to find a new thing now that was our thing and now women are doing it now we got to find a new thing um and Mm -hmm. well it's it's a combination between that and the easton ellis article and the the still prevailing view that women aren't supposed to be sexual right And, and this person brought up magic mike which i was like you oh, are dear. bringing up a movie that, again, do you not understand how film works? I, this is, again, a film critic. I was not understanding why he would bring this up, because I was like, look at the history of... First off, I mean, you want to talk about the films. Look at the history of how male strippers are portrayed in cinema versus female strippers. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. look at the concept of, again, what you are being sold. Those movies are selling different things. Um I, I just, oh my gosh, I was sitting there thinking, like, do some research, people. Please do your homework before you make asinine statements on Facebook. That's all I'm saying. I, Check I with me before se- you talk. Yes. <laughs> you do just want to start sending these guys, like, you know, here's a link to, you know, five different uh, seminal feminist film theory articles. Read them, understand them, apply them to your viewership and then talk to me because uh, otherwise we can't have this conversation yeah (laughs) as i was telling as i was telling him you know red sparrow i think is part of the genre and i'm sure i haven't come up with this term i would never say i invented this somebody will probably tell me i did or not like feminism f-a-u-x like fake feminism where movies are like perpetuated as oh they're strong and empowered because they're going to kick ass but then we're also going to use them as whack-off material. So you can both jack it and respect them. Um, so I think, like, Red Sparrow and something like Sucker Punch. Like, 
you you can't really have it both ways um you, you can't um so yeah just just stop just stop with this stuff speaking of women um uh, we have another question um i'm just trying to find natural flows to all of these things you're doing great so this is a suggestion from at i'm never gonna get this person's uh twitter handle at at pause it's pow p-a-u um they say fun game create a movie starring an actress from the 60s seven one from the 70s from the 80s 90s 2000s and this decade and do the same for actors what is it about and who directs it oh god i know <laughs> i can tell you one it's I a have fun also. question i can tell you one i could have for an act for actors right off the bat because i i tend okay. to do this a lot uh, at home so I have always said <laughs> that I would really love to see, like, a movie, and I know we've had movies about these things, but never the way that I wanted to do it, where it's, like, two, like, dapper PIs set in the 40s, um, preferably directed, if we could have any director direct it, by, like, like, Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch would be really good, or, like, a like a Q-Core, kind of like a weird, zany, screwball private detective movie with, like, shenanigans and homoeroticism, uh, because that's my thing, um, with, like, if we're going, like, 60s Warren Beatty, with, like, 70s mm. Robert Redford, Ooh. and, let's see, like, 80s, like, who would look really good in a fedora in the 80s? Okay. Richard Gere? What? Richard Gere? No, ew. I'm sorry, no. that's not my thing. Um, we're going to need, like, a young, like, pretty boy that's probably horrible as an actor. So I'm going to throw Jake Ryan in there from, from 16 Candles. Okay. Uh, okay. 90s, 90s, 90s. Um, ooh. I'd go, like, 90s Leo. His hair would not be period-specific, but that would be okay. 2000s, I said Matt Bomber. Like, 2000s era, like, early 2000s Matt Bomber. And, like... This decade, like, Army Hammer. And it would just be, like, a bunch of PIs. They'd be, like, doing stuff, solving crimes. It would have, like, weird sexual innuendos. It'd be like if Rock Hudson <laughs> made um, a private detective film. Um, and it would be awesome. So that's that's mine that I can immediately come up with. Hmm. That's a good one. I like uh, that. I try. I try. This is the weird shit I think of late at night. <laughs> <laughs> That came completely off. Yeah, I've like literally I've thought about this. So you just stole you have. it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm weird. Wait till you get me to talk about my all uh, male version, all older British actors version of the Expendables. Ooh. Ah, I know. Yes. I have one. I have one. <laughs> I have one. I was literally sitting there like, where can I get Jared Harris, Jeremy Irons, and Colin Firth in a movie together? Like, fucking shit up. It would be great, right? <laughs> but it would be like now. So. <laughs> well, see, I will jump in and say that Jaguar commercial with the British villains. I would watch that movie. Yes. <laughs> Whoever did that commercial, I would watch that movie if that were a movie. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Does anybody else have one for for Uh, actresses or actors? I I find this stuff so impossible, but um, the the only thing... This is a total cheat, so I'm not even... I don't even know why I'm saying this. Ever since I saw the movie Red, I have longed longed for an all-female version of Red. Uh, with like so you can you can and and it starts with Helen Mirren so like Helen Mirren, Diana Rigg, Judi Dench, Maggie Smith, 
uh, with like Bill Nighy as their as like the token dude, <laughs> yes. and yes, just like they're it. all experts. You know, you've got you've got both Diana Rigg and Helen Mirren have a long history of having been badass women on screen and on television. So like one of them can be the uh, the weapons expert, and the other one can be into explosives and all of that. Shit. And I just I want to see those women just fucking shit up like 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 they do in red only though so that's what i want hmm. are you listening hollywood <laughs> yeah yeah we have probably we have movies, that movie. okay like i know <laughs> i got and i got remakes i got remakes in my back pocket too in case in case spielberg wants to take another movie i love and remake it <laughs> oh man this is really hard I, I don't I don't think I could follow that up without a week's worth of prep. I know. <laughs> so that's a good start, and we will come back next week yes. with more. Yes. I was about to say I will provide something next week. Yes. Yeah. And again, you have plenty of time now to give us new new caveats for a make your own movie things. We got ideas. We we do. Yeah. Um. So so let's jump into uh, some other stuff that's going on. Um. This came out last week, and speaking of things set in the past, um. So this came out uh, last week, so it might have already been decided. We're not really sure. Um, But after the week that Tarantino had had, um, where he had made asinine statements on the Howard Stern show in 2003 that came back to haunt him and had to apologize, and then Uma Thurman's article about the Kill Bill car accident that she uh, was forced to do, there was a rumor going around that Sony was having second thoughts about producing Tarantino's not Charles Manson biopic um -hmm. (laughs) and they're supposedly concerned about the press that would would inevitably come to tarantino and that they are also reconsidering it because it's going to be incredibly expensive they're looking at at least 100 million to make it after marketing it would technically need to earn 375 million worldwide to break even and tarantino has only done that once in 2012 with django unchained and barely with that yes and mm-hmm. there's also issues about the fact that he wants to make Roman Polanski a central character in the movie, which allegedly he had mentioned trying to find a Polish actor. And the rumor now is that that's the role that Tom Cruise was offered. Which, that's not oh, what I had heard. Kidding. That's not what I had heard at all. I, I guess this is speculation. I don't know. Okay. This is speculation. Um, according to Showbiz 411, it's speculating that they had offered him the role, which, again, would make no sense because as much as Karen thinks he's immortal... And I'm not inclined to disbelieve that. Oh, he can't um, do accents. Yeah, and he's also 55. Polanski right, was yeah. Crazy. He's not going to play Polanski yeah, in the how... 70s. Or, sorry, 1969. Yeah, yeah, no, that would never work. And that's also not at all the character I'd heard that they pitched to him. So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of this is still up in the air. Um, and we all know right now the big, expensive auteur projects. We have one out in the movie theaters right now that is not doing very well. Um so yeah, if if this do a do we think this movie's gonna not happen? No, it's gonna happen. It'll ha- I think it's gonna happen. With two to three Manson and Tate projects out next year, I would really be fine within less a year and a half. I'd be fine with it not happening. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm fine with it not working out. But, but I, think I just it will. it's Tarantino. It will. These are the stuff that's come out about him has been stuff he has said much more than stuff he has done. If someone came out and said, oh, by the way, Tarantino harassed me too, then that might be, you know, that might end the project, but. 
I mean, I'm going to grasp at any straws that like give me <laughs> hope that this movie is never going to happen. Um, yeah. I, I, I really hope that it doesn't. Won't surprise me if it does. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's Tarantino. If, if now, if Sony pulls out, if Sony says we don't want to make this, and he has to um, try to find funding somewhere else, or he has to take it somewhere somewhere else, then there's there's a possibility that it'll fall apart. But God, I mean, this the he almost didn't do. I remember when the Hateful Eight was not going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, and then it obviously happened. So I'm not wasn't part of the reason that that wasn't going to happen though, because he was mad that the script had been leaked. Yeah, okay. yeah, that was that was the whole uh, Gawker leaked the script right uh, back yeah. in the day, uh, and it was probably coming. I forget what it what, how it all fell out, but it, it was it was probably coming from one of the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, had either given the script to someone or someone had seen the script and then leaked it. It was a very sort of complicated thing and Tarantino basically threw a hissy fit. Yeah. Uh, but then wound up making the film anyways. So, so yeah. yeah. Which I get being mad about that, but at the same time it happens. It happens all the time. I mean, <laughs> I, I, getting I mad would, about it. Isn't I would know nothing about getting the script sent to me that probably I shouldn't have had in my possession. Um, Nothing at all. Never what are we talking about, Karen? Quit bringing it up. Um, anywho, so moving on to other new stuff. Um, this also came out last week, uh, and it got kind of uh, lost in the Black Panther shuffle of, of stuff that we were doing. Um, but Tessa Thompson has signed on to star as Doris Payne, the, acclaim- the, the notorious jewel thief. It's supposedly uh, a untitled, supposedly untitled film as of right now. It's conceived as a high concept action drama in the vein of Catch Me If You Can and The Thomas Crown Affair. And if you don't know who Doris Payne is, she's, her uh, all the she's now 87, but she would yes. enter jewelry stores as uh, posing as a well-to-do woman looking for a ring and she would be given a variety of different items and she would eventually cause the clerk to forget how many items had been set out and leave with stuff. Um, she has a, a criminal record dating back to the 50s, arrested, and has admitted to using 20 aliases, 10 social security numbers, and 9 dates of birth. Um, she was also the subject of a 2013 documentary called The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne. So, I am so excited for this. You have no idea. I love Tessa Thompson so much, and if she's gonna be, like, stealing jewelry, I'm all for this. And if they could even make this better by releasing it at the same time they make that Michael B. Jordan starring Thomas Crown Affair remake, I would probably just die from happiness. Like, straight up, <laughs> die. Yes. 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 I, I just, it's I don't even like... know what else to say. Like, just please More give Tessa me... Thompson's yes. Always a yes. Good thing. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of other new stuff uh, with women, Jessica Chastain is supposedly in negotiations to star in the most perfect casting to ever have been invented. Uh, she is supposedly in contention to star in New Line's sequel to It as the adult version of Beverly. Um, I have to say, when It first came out and everyone was, you know, of course, casting the adults in their minds, a lot of people said Jessica Chastain. And on our Award Circuit podcast, I was like, guys, she's never in a million years going to do it. They'd have to have a budget of $300 million. I take it back. <laughs> I, I said... I am so happy to be wrong about I that. Personally I personally said I, it's, Amy Adams, but... I think either of them would be great. I I like... 
I don't know. I really like Jessica Chastain's feistiness. I think it'd be a good fit. So yeah, what well, it helps that she is friends with director Andy Muschietti, who directed mm-hmm. her in Mama. Mm-hmm. So okay. that makes a lot more sense to people. Makes more sense. Supposedly, yeah. these are really early negotiations, and the the script is not done. But they have been discussing her uh, being in the project. It will come out next September, with production expected to start this summer. So. Gonna have to make and something I just found out is that apparently she was supposed to appear in a post-credit scene for the end of it that did not end up happening. Oh, oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So yeah, mm-hmm. I I expect that if she signs on, we'll see some other names pop up. I would really love a return personally to like remember when big name actors starred in horror films like in the seventies. Like you know you, mm-hmm. you you think of like how surprising it was probably in the 70s to see Gregory Peck in The Omen. I, but mm-hmm, that yeah. makes that movie so fantastic. Um, so I would love a return to like actually having respect for horror films and getting big name actors. So I know people have, have kind of um, dreamcasted the rest of the uh, It stars. So I'm, I'm very excited. The only sad thing is that there's like not a role for Oscar Isaac in this movie. <laughs> That's the sad thing. So yeah. Maybe somebody dyed his hair. <laughs> I think he would have to dye. He could be like a cop or something. Exactly. Yeah, just like <laughs> random it victim. <laughs> it should make sense. It would be like a suburbicon level cameo. I could, I could work with that. So moving on to some other things. Um, if you were curious why, for a brief shining moment in time, ages were not on IMDb anymore, you don't have to worry about that because they are. Um, California declared IMDb's age censorship law unconstitutional. Okay, it wasn't IMDb's law. The California State Legislature passed a law that specifically said IMDb could not post the ages of people if they were asked not to. Right. Um, and, th- and this was this was uh, <laughs> specifically for IMDb. Yeah, it was only it was only targeting IMDb. This was a very bizarre <laughs> moment in time. I remember when this happened. I guess some actors had brought forth this this law that they wanted to pass that said that if they their ages were listed on IMDb it would discriminate against them if you could tell how right. old they were and they actually did this and now it's i mean this was silly i'm sorry i'm sorry i maybe i'm not an actor i don't understand i thought this was silly to begin with well it was totally silly it was it was a ridiculous law and also part of the reason the judge struck it down is because you can't have a law that just targets one business right <laughs> like, yeah. that's there's, there's the clincher right yeah there. but what i also thought was really interesting in the judge's decision i'm trying to find it right here is that the judge actually said that it's not ageism that's the problem it's sexism like put it in the decision here it is uh the judge was Uh, Vince Shabria. And so in part of his decision, he said, movie producers don't typically refuse to cast an actor as a leading man because he's too old for the leading woman. It is the Mm -hmm. prospective leading woman who can't get the part unless she's much younger than the leading man. TV networks don't typically jettison male news anchors because they are perceived as too old. It is the female anchors whose success is often dependent on their youth. This is not so much because the entertainment industry has a problem with older people per se. Rather, it's a manifestation of the industry's insistence on objectifying women, overvaluing 
changing their looks while devaluing everything else. The defendants barely yes. acknowledge this, much less explain how a law preventing one company from posting age-related information on one website could discourage the entertainment industry from continuing to objectify and devalue women. Thank you. Thank you. I love that, Judge. Yes. That makes me so happy to hear. Mm-hmm. So, moving on, uh, let's we'll go back to news in a second, but let's uh, talk a trailer that came out uh, this week. We have a new Shersha Ronan movie coming out in May. Yay! Uh, Yay! It was the trailer for On Chesil Beach. Um, I had heard about this last year. I guess it had gone to some festivals and it had played some places, but it did not come out. Uh, it will come out May 18th. It's got... It premiered, I think, at TIFF, but it didn't get picked up by any distributors until it premiered in London at Distributors... You're kidding. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, directed by Dominic Cook, written by Ian McEwan, who wrote the original novel. You might know him as the person who wrote the original novel, Atonement. Um, Shersha Ronan plays a woman growing up in England in 1962 who is in love with a man, and they find their romance kind of having issues with uh, society and sexual politics and all that stuff. Um, I watched the trailer for this twice, and I did not know what the plot was. And, I mean, that can be a good thing, but it's also proof that this trailer is very confused on what the movie is about. Because when you watch it, it's like, okay, they're different classes, but then there's, like, this bizarre inserting of, like, she also has issues about sex that because they're not talking about it to women. I don't know. I was very confused about what this movie well, was. Well, it's their wedding night. Right. It's yeah, the the movie looks at their relationship but then it it's really following them on their wedding night and Right. Yeah. She's she's afraid of sex. Yeah, I just I thought it was a very I mean, so. I'm interested in the movie. I thought the trailer didn't sell it well. Yeah, Maybe I just already knew enough about it going exactly, in. Exactly, yeah, I went in cold, so I, I knew nothing. Yeah, me me too. Me too, and I had the same reaction. I was just like, wait a minute, is this entire film going to be about a, a woman who's nervous to have sex with her husband? Like, that that was my initial reaction. I was like, is that, <laughs> is that what this is all about? Is that it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it looks like it could, it could, if it does it well, it could really investigate, you know, class relationships and, and um, uh, gender and sexual relationships in the 1960s and the way that that was sort of presented to him because we, we forget how how much uh, amazingly enough how much things really have changed at least in the way that women talk about sex publicly and the and the way that they're told about sex um so there there are interesting things that could be there watching it i was just like oh god this looks like a, a yet another you know sort of period british melodrama um which i enjoy but after a while, it just becomes very wearing. The thing is, though, and I, I totally hear what you're saying, Lauren, but the thing is that the, this idea, especially like the sexual politics and all of that um, and societal pressure and all of that stuff, um, that has applications to a lot of people today still. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I grew up in a Mormon, in the Mormon culture. I still am very much a Mormon and... Uh, in a lot of ways, I um, culturally don't necessarily fit in with them, but you know, I I know this idea. I mean, this still permeates today because of the way that the church teaches about mm-hmm. chastity and morality, and it makes it very scary and confusing for people. And so, this is something that does still apply 
to not just to Mormons. A lot of people still fit into that, you know. So if it's done well, it can be something that could really lead to very interesting conversations, I think. Well, we will know on May 18th when it comes out. I am automatically obligated because I love Churchy Ronan. So, um, <laughs> She's so great. Moving right along, uh, a brief, uh, something you saw at, I'm trying to remember where you saw this, Sundance? I think it was. Um, oh, are you on The yes, Kindergarten Teacher? Yes. yes. Um, yeah. So Netflix has acquired Maggie Gyllenhaal's film, The Kindergarten Teacher, which you really enjoyed. I did enjoy it. It's um, it's uh, it's kind of hard to describe without getting too much into it, but it's it's very much a psychological examination, I think, <laughs> of Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, and I I'm intri- I'm intrigued by the fact that it's going to Netflix. I do think that means fewer people will watch it, maybe, but at the same time. Maybe not. I I don't know. I still don't know what to do, what to think about the Netflix thing. If they market this, I think a lot of people will be like, ooh, hey, cool, I'll check this out. But that's the problem. They market some stuff and not other things. Right, and, and, and this yeah. is one of yeah. those, I, I know about it because you've talked about it. So Yeah, and it's it's a good movie, and I hope that people will watch it, especially when it's just right there in your TV box already. So. I love how you call it TV box. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was... It was popular. I waitlisted for it late in week two of Sundance, and I couldn't get in. Yeah. Thanks, Sundance. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I, I really want people to see it. It's it's uh, It was different than I expected it to be. So Okay, so the next in a three good way. stories... In a good gonna, way. The next three stories are going to be our kind of uh, time's up, kind of sucky people, but not garbage people things. Um so the first thing that came out this week that was really interesting was Brendan Fraser did a cover story for GQ magazine that was appropriately titled Whatever Happened to Brendan Fraser? Um, and it was a really, really sad, melancholic interview with him about why his career just kind of petered out. Um, but he also accused the former Hollywood foreign press uh, president of um, some sexual misconduct, which they are investigating right now. So, which he felt also colored his his um, e- exit from Hollywood. Um, so, I was really really sad to read this, but at the same time, I I hope that it means that Brendan Fraser is going to get some some renewed attention because I think we forget just how ubiquitous he was for the nineties. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I loved Brendan Fraser. I was in high school when Encino man came out and actually it's funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's so funny cause my mom was born in Encino, California. And so I used to tell people that her first date was with Encino man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I loved Brendan Fraser so much. And actually, just recently, I was thinking, man, I've missed him. Where's he been? And then, boom, this article popped up. And, oh, man, it's so, it's just so sad to read it and to just, uh, Lauren, you said it best in our Slack that Hollywood just eats people alive. Yeah. You know, it just, it's so true. When I was reading through and he's, he's telling his account, which, of course, um, I can't even remember the guy's name. Uh, the president. Oh, Philip B- Burke, uh, former president of HFPA. Um, when he's telling the story about what what happened to him, 
I was just like, oh my gosh, like he is 100% telling the truth because you don't give yeah. those details unless that happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's obvious that he was traumatized. Oh yeah. Very clearly. And it's just heartbreaking. Well, and, and also some of the things that he talks about doing the mummy and basically, you know, building himself an exoskeleton out of ice packs mm-hmm. that it, it's obvious that working in Hollywood just took a toll on his body that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you can kind of see, I mean, you can see in, in some of his later films when he's gotten, he's obviously not healthy. Right. And, and it's, it's kind of a question of like, what's, what's happening to him basically. But it, you know, it, everything that he says makes sense. Well, I, I think it mm-hmm. goes um, back to what we were talking about with the whole, I, I mean, I think the assumption to, it goes back to the discussion about, that we had about, you know, why can, why can women comment on a, a man's appearance, but men can't comment on women's appearances discussion. And I think what we often forget is that Hollywood is such an appearance driven commodity. Yeah. I mean, that's what it boils mm-hmm. down to for better or worse. These people are not hired, you know, for, I'm going to be blunt. These people are not always hired for their talent. And, and you can look at the history of film from the beginning of time. A lot of them are hired because of how they look. I mean, there's a reason Anna Sten had a very brief career in Hollywood because Louis B. thought she was hot. Um, well, a perfect example of that is actually in the movie The Disaster Artist when Dave Franco as Greg right. Sestero is going out looking for an agent and he gets to Sharon Stone and she's just like, she looks at him. She doesn't have him read a line of anything. And she's just like, yep, I want yeah. you. I mean, and I think that's, <laughs> she doesn't know if he can act. That's what it boils. That's ultimately what it boils down to. And I think when when actors and I I say this about actors and actresses, I use actors in the gender neutral term. When the appearance changes, and they're especially, and I think it's a, a, equated to how much of your talent is equated to your your is alongside your looks. The fall is worse. So I think of like the comments people make about Val Kilmer. You know, the man was just so beautiful, mm-hmm. and now it's just so sad to look at. Yeah, Marlon Brando, same thing. Um, it actresses, actresses, I think, feel it more because of the, the history of how women's appearance is commodified. But we do it with men, too. I mean, and when, when that goes away, you know, and I think a lot of reading Brendan Fraser's accounts... I think that that bothers him too is that he was elevated as this good-looking all-american guy and how does he deal with the fact that that went away you know and that he 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 seems very painfully aware that he does not look the same as he once did and i think it i think it bothers him as well yeah mm-hmm. well and, and i mean famously mickey rourke basically right. you know if you look at mickey rourke now you look at mickey rourke when he was a young actor and it's he looks very very different but mickey Rourke famously went out and basically got himself pummeled because he there was he wanted to destroy that he wanted to destroy that look of you know this very good looking young man so it it happens to actors all the time and it's yeah it's it's a it's a image driven society and particularly actors that have been sold as the good looking leading man um if you lose that so you know you're, you're better off actually if you're less good looking and a character actor if you're an actor because you can mm-hmm. continue to work and it's not solely dependent on you maintaining this perfect body's perfect good looks 
uh, actors like Tobey Maguire and um, Matt Damon have talked about, you know, wanting to stop doing action films because they were so tired of the toll that it was taking on their bodies. Uh, constantly having to be in the gym, constantly having to have six packs, all of that stuff. And it's got, it seems to have gotten worse over the years where we're requiring both men and women to fit into a very specific uh, good looking actor mold. That superhero movie culture. Yeah, it's you know mo- most men do not do not naturally have six packs. This is not a normal thing for the male body. What? So you see that <laughs> they in don't all, all these... look like Chris Evans under yeah. there. What? So you see that in all. Well, yeah, exactly. You see that in all of these men. So many of them are having to do things like steroids. They're having to to spend hours upon hours upon hours in the gym in order to get these bodies that are basically unnatural. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I had heard it, Hugh Jackman talked about, you know, with all those years of playing Wolverine, just, you know, how, how thrilled his wife was to have him be done because he was such an unpleasant person while he was doing it. Because mm-hmm. it's nothing but the gym and grilled chicken. Exactly, yeah. Yep. I mean, you, you hear yeah. about some of these, these guys' like workout routines and it's just, it's insane. So, hopefully this means that the Brandon Fraser renaissance is upon us because he's awesome. I miss my George of the Jungle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So moving on, um, there was a really interesting um, bit of Time's Up news this week. Um, Devin McNair, who is a Hollywood stunt woman, has been leading a crusade against the practice of known as wigging, which is uh, where stunt men don wigs and women's clothes to double as actresses because they don't want to hire female stunt actors. women to to do these jobs um you also see this with blackface too a lot um especially um in the years before it was less appropriate where they would put white stunt men they would put them in blackface that they could do stunts for black actors um but Devin mcnair has been leading this crusade to stop the practice she had asked the time's up movement to do it and she claims that time's up said that the uh, case was quote outside the scope of their work um so how do we feel about that well i would really like to hear more from times up about that because yeah i mean their whole thing is at least my understanding of their charge is not just about fighting back against harassment and assault but about equality in the industry equal representation equal pay all of that and so if that's really the truth then i would like to know more about why they specifically are not willing to help out their response is quote she has a real issue and i whoever wrote this i am sure it was frustrating for her to get the response she did unfortunately the legal defense fund was not the place for her to get relief the legal defense fund does handle sexual harassment and assault in all industries um so they're essentially saying that it was not she she went to the wrong place okay and that makes sense. It's, they're saying it's a discrimination issue, yes. not a harassment yes. assault issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, well, yeah, which it is, which it is at that level, right? So that would make sense. But who who do you go to in that case then? And is Times Up? I didn't. I wasn't under the understanding that Times Up was just the legal defense fund. I thought it was more than that. So does that mean that we need to create something? Yeah, it says there are multiple initiatives. Um and. So supposedly the only person that contacted Deadline to respond was the Legal Defense Fund. I'm, I'm a bit unclear as well. Um, Devin McNair also filed this complaint with the Equal Opportunity 
um, commission in September before Time's Up. And she was told, essentially her argument was, is that the male stunt coordinator on a project she worked on wouldn't let her do a uh, stunt driving job because he felt it was too dangerous for her. Um, so he donned a wig and woman's clothes and did it himself. And when she confronted him about an Instagram photo that he posted in women's garb, he said, quote, I have six sisters. I probably know more about women than you do. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, isn't that just a, just a male response there? Just like, I know more about women than you do. I am literally a yeah. woman. Literally. So, actually a the woman. The people that work for gender equity um, also gave her a letter and, and kind of turned her down. And they said, quote, they work solely on issues of sex discrimination in the workplace, healthcare, and education. Unfortunately, we are unable to offer legal assistance as the matter you contacted about us about is outside the scope. So, this is an issue. I mean, I, I read about... Wait, how is that not discrimination? Right. And, yeah. and I mean, yeah. I've read a book. There's actually a really amazing book that came out from University Press of Kentucky uh, about a year or two ago about the history of stunt women and this concept of wigging. And it's, it's horrible that... A, you're taking jobs away from from a woman whose purpose is to do that very thing. And you're finding, it's just this concept of we have to find ways to get men to do these jobs. Whether that means putting them in a wig or putting them in blackface, you know, if they're a white uh, stuntman. It's just, it's an industry of Hollywood. You should be doing something to fix it. All industries, I thought, were supposed to do something about fixing their own issues like cleaning your own house and the stunt industry needs to get it together yeah you know it's it's an odd it's an it is an odd problem it's one of those things that's very specific to that right. industry so it it feels like at least in, in terms of what the the response that time's up is giving it seems like either she went to the wrong section of time's up which then raises the question about how well this this place is organized. It's a new organization. You, you got to give them a little bit of growing pains, but also you, you have to think about okay, why why are they not addressing these issues? Um, and then second of all, that this has just not been set up properly to be able to deal with those kinds of very industry specific problems. Um, there are very few industries in which men are going to put on women's clothing and do a job that a woman could do. Uh, <laughs> yeah um, so it's it's an it's an odd one but you do it does feel like there is a hole in the organization that this oh. sort of thing is going to slip through the cracks and they need to they need to set up a way of dealing with it because it's I, important i am on the website right now i just pulled it up and i just clicked on our mission Hmm, this is interesting. Time's Up is a unified call for change from women in entertainment for women everywhere. From women sets, or sorry, from movie sets to farm fields to boardrooms alike, we envision nationwide leadership that reflects the world in which we live. Powered by women, Time's Up addresses the systemic inequality and injustice in the workplace that have kept underrepresented groups from reaching their full potential. <laughs> It seems like it's we in the partner scope. with leading advocates. This seems like it's in the scope, and so far I have not gotten to anything that specifically says this is only a legal defense well, fund. I think, it, I think it also implies that this is strictly sexual harassment or assault. And if that's the case, mm -hmm. then they need to explicate that very loudly. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. If, if it's gender equality and 
gender discrimination, then this is within the scope. If they're solely there to prevent sexual harassment and, and assault and discrimination, specifically sexual harassment that leads to discrimination, then you need to explicate that because those are two very different modes. Well, actually, you know what? I, keep, I kept doing a little bit more clicking. So what I had just read came from the Our Mission section, where it's very clear that their mission is to just help women in representation and harassment and everything. Then when you click over to Know Your Rights, it specifically is how to know if you're being sexually harassed. Um, where to get help is the Legal Defense Fund and uh, specifically about sexual harassment. And defraying legal costs. So, yeah. So, they say their mission is, to, like, so I, I understand why Devin McNair went to them. And I also, I guess, understand why they rejected her. But it sounds like they're just not talking the same language right now. So, they're, they're saying that their mission is to help women in all capacities. But right now, that's not what they're doing. So, they need to either, like, clarify their mission as to what they're currently doing. Or get something straight on how to help in other areas besides sexual harassment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so our last bit of news is, it might be sad to a fanboy out there. I don't really know if I'm necessarily sad about this, but Joss Whedon is leaving the Batgirl movie. Um, this is courtesy of I know. Hollywood Reporter's <laughs> Heat Vision. Um, after a year of working on the project, he was writing and slated to direct Joss Whedon has said that he could not crack the code of what a Batgirl movie should be. He says, quote, I realized I really didn't have a story. I know. It's so it's so sad. And I understand why he didn't have a story. I mean, there's only 50 years of comics to pull from. So, you know, I mean, Wonder Woman had 75. And so. I also think that it doesn't <laughs> help that I, the tide is kind of turned in the wake of Time's Up and Me Too against Whedon. You know, he kind of, I'm not going to say he started it, but I that, that article that his wife wrote was something that people recalled. Yeah. And it really put that chink in his armor. And also people were not well, pleased at the fact that they got a male in the wake of Wonder Woman to direct this movie. Exactly. Well, and um, the fact that the movie turned out the way, the fact that Justice League turned out the way it was. I know I heard a lot of... Justice League was horrible, and that was one of the things that really let me down was, wow, having him involved as long as it was, and it was still as horrible as it was to Wonder Woman. Yeah, well, he apparently didn't rewrite enough of the script, to, or direct enough of it, something like that, to get credited, so it's not entirely right. his fault, but he also didn't save it either. <laughs> yeah, he's, so. he's, he could have tried, he's, man. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Because I, I will freely, I've said yeah. before on this podcast, I like Joss Whedon. I like Joss Whedon a lot. Well, I like his stuff. I don't like him. Well, <laughs> I think I like neither art him versus nor his stuff. I think some of his stuff hasn't aged. Like some of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer stuff, I don't think has aged very well. But no. at the same time, I mean, he did make some types, some effort, some strides. It's not perfect. Um, but really, I know people were talking on on Twitter about how. Barbara Gordon as a character is probably the most optimistic superhero. You know, she doesn't have a troubled past. She doesn't have a, a murdered family. She genuinely wants to help people. There's no damaged, to quote from what we're reviewing, she's not damaged goods. <laughs> I, I, I think that is hard for a male to grasp. Because, you know, don't women go out and 
become vigilantes, go into space, go to the military because they're broken. You know, I mean, exactly. I, I understand why a woman would ha- only be able to figure this out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and wasn't there there was a script, an early script that Reed had written for oh, Wonder Woman yeah. movie, which is supposedly horrible. That yeah, that I read part of that popped up online, and people were posting sections of it and stuff like that. And and it is, it does sort of confirm that yeah, he does not, he cannot imagine, he cannot imagine female characters existing outside of trauma. He cannot imagine female characters existing outside of a male narrative and and the way that the things that were in that script it was like that script was everything i was terrified wonder woman was going to be and Mm -hmm. and i remember when that came out because it was around the same time that he got the batgirl gig and i was just like are you fucking kidding me in the in post wonder woman are we actually we're giving a movie to this man to talk about a you know young female superhero seriously uh right yeah no good riddance bye josh (laughs) yeah i am not sad to see him go at all real quick before we segue and i don't know if anybody had saw this after the joss whedon announcement was made that roxanne gay she is a i'm kind of looking i was not familiar with her but i know a lot of people are She's written a Black Black Panther comic. Um, she is a, I believe, a professor, has some really amazing credits to her. She basically came out and tweeted and said, yeah, I'll, I'll try. I'll give it a spin. Mm-hmm. And everybody was going, oh, this is interesting. And this morning, one of the execs at DC tweeted back and said, well, if you're serious, email me. So it's some interesting discussions. That would be oh, awesome. Great. Well, that leads into an interesting segue. This uh, We got a question from the fantastic Robert Hamer, who is a, a buddy of ours. Um, he says, quote, how will the rise of women filmmakers coinciding with the explosion of women running for political office change the way we see women in cinema? And is there a woman activist filmmaker you think should be getting more attention from the mainstream? So I definitely think that we're seeing a shift now. It's a very subtle shift towards acknowledging women filmmakers in general and that women need to be directing just not just movies about women but just directing in general the odds are still too low and the obviously the statistics are are lower but i mean we say film is a dialectic so if we have more women in political office hopefully that will make it easier for people to believe that women can actually like direct movies about people in political office that's my mentality at least Yeah, well, one thing that I see changing, I mean, especially we're seeing this on TV, but a lot of the executives that are getting promoted into those positions are women now. And that is where things are going to change. Unfortunately, it has to, it has to start, you know, it has to go up at the top level because they're the ones that are ultimately making the decisions on who to, for, for studio films, they're the ones that are making decisions on who to bring on to direct and write these things. And is and when you have more women in charge not named Kathleen Kennedy, then you get more diversity in your filmmakers. And so I think that's what's I don't I mean, it's definitely I think seeing women in more political offices and things like that is definitely helpful in showing that women are capable of running stuff, but in order to change the tide in the film industry, it has to be women running running in you know big networks and big studios so 
Well, let me, I just wanted to jump in because I, I'm almost wondering if it has to be an age, uh, more of a generational thing. Because we see uh, the, that's those statistics that came out. Women are by far and away the most prominent in producing roles. And perhaps I have a sour taste in my mouth right now, but Kathleen Kennedy shows exactly what's going on. We have a woman in the top position in that. And what did we get? The two guys from Game of Thrones to run it. Mm -hmm. Star Wars has been one of the constant issues with them not wanting to promote women to the top. So, I mean, maybe it's, it, you know, that generation of women that were coming up in the 70s and 80s who are perpetuating this. Maybe as we see younger women coming up, maybe things will change. Well, and part of, yeah, I agree. Part of this is, is about the issues of the, the way that the feminist movement has changed over the years. And there has been, for a period there, there there's been this sense of, like, you get to the top and you close the door yeah um mm -hmm. and and so that it, it's and it's perpetuated by by issues of patriarchy because there are a lot of women that feel i've worked so hard to get to this position and but there's really only room for one woman at the table uh and so i have to keep out all of the others because i'm the one woman i'm the one who got here and and that attitude while understandable given the way that these women have had to fight to get to the positions that they're in is also going to continue to perpetuate this issue of not having women in um, media. So you do have to have people like Kathleen Kennedy opening the door and saying, like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna drag in all of these women behind me um, and give them a position, give them a chance to to sit down at the table and to be in contention with men, and you know, to produce films, to direct films, to write films, and that's beginning to happen. And you actually see a lot more female directors working in television now. Mm -hmm. And but we you want to see them moving forward into feature films and into cinema, uh, or into um, I'm sorry, television is cinema, uh, but into you know the the big franchises to actually be like yes, women can do this, and and it's wonderful to see directors like Ava DuVernay and Patty Jenkins being very encouraging to young filmmakers and saying like here we're again we're going to bring you along we're going to try to get you into these positions we're going to get you the mentorship and the training that you need in order to be able to produce uh films because that's part of the issue is that a lot of women simply don't have the same opportunities and the same chance to be mentored by other women in the industry well do we have an mm -hmm. activist filmmaker that we recommend i mean for me, I think of someone like, um, I think they were just talking about Ama Asante uh, was doing like a, a mentorship program on the sly for for young women. Um, so I always throw her name out as a director people should uh, look at. Watch watch something like Belle, even a United Kingdom, which I don't think is as good as Belle, but it's still really good. Um, any any other? I think Dee Reese. Yeah. I think Dee Reese is another yeah. one people should be watching. Mm -hmm. She's done great stuff. I mean, of course, Mudbound is nominated for four Academy Awards, but she's also got Pariah, um, which is, you know, that was a... She, when I interviewed her a few months ago, she said that she gets letters from, like, 11- and 12-year-old girls who have found so much meaning from that movie. And so it's it's really cool to see that. And that's actually something I was thinking about, like, because with Mudbound going to Netflix, now you've got The Kindergarten Teacher going to Netflix, which is directed by Sarah Colangelo. And it's like, Netflix is, is the one place people are giving it a lot of shit for some of the stuff that it picks up, but it's also the one place <laughs> that's willing to actually pay money for these great women-directed films, too. 
that can't find another studio to back them and put them in theaters. So maybe there's uh, something well, you, to Netflix. And you've also got directors like Lexi Alexander, who is um, uh, is a German filmmaker, who's a German Palestinian filmmaker, uh, who's been very, who's very, very vocal uh, mm-hmm. about uh, her gender advocacy and um, being derived direct denied directorial opportunities because she's female and she's done a lot of television uh she her her ma- major film credit is um punisher Warzone, but she's also done like t- episodes of arrow and supergirl and american gothic and how to get away with murder so she's one of those that it's it's like sh- she has her own agendas and her own and obviously the things that she wants to work on but she's a very interesting figure and someone that I think needs more of an opportunity, maybe not necessarily to direct a Hollywood film, but to have a higher profile uh, yeah. in, in, the, in mainstream filmmaking. Absolutely. Well, she just had an enlightening tweet. I believe it was this morning. She was talking about, you know, the double standards that female directors have to live up to. How, you know, I think back to that Kathleen Kennedy interview again saying, well, if we had, you know, these are big projects, if we had a woman who, you know, could handle such a big project, we'd give it to her. And she, Lexi Alexander essentially said, you know, to, for a woman to direct an action film, you have to prove yourself as, you know, going to the gym and, you know, just being this action figure. But yet she said the amount of times I've lost, a, you know, I've mm-hmm. lost a film to a nerdy white guy yeah, who's never exactly. seen a gym. Well, exactly. another one, one of my favorite filmmakers right now is Anna Biller, who's only, I think, only done two feature films so far. Both of them, you know, we're talking about visual filmmaking. Both of them are staggering in just the visuals that they present and the aesthetics that they present. And now she's a very quirky filmmaker. She's kind of she she does play around with um, pastiche and and constructing something very new. But she's one of those filmmakers that has such a brilliant visual sense and a, such a brilliant aesthetic sense and a, an idea of what she wants to produce. But I mean, as someone was talking about this the other day, it was just like several several guys were suddenly talking about the Love Witch as being like, oh, I gotta go see The Love Witch. Just like, dudes, we t- we were talking about this two fucking years ago. <laughs> two years ago, women were discussing this film and saying how what, what an important and spectacular film it was, and then suddenly these guys had discovered The Love Witch. They're just like, man, get with the program. Like, you know, we, we have to put more spotlights on these women. Well, moving yes. on to our last question. This came from at James Hart. He said, if you could pick any 2017 movie villain to fight and try to defeat, even an organization, who or what would you choose? I'm kicking Reynold Woodcock's ass. (laughs) (laughs) That You'd win, too. If we ever make t-shirts, that needs to be on there. That's a shirt. That's a shirt. <laughs> yep. Yep. Nope. Um, sim- similarly, I was going to say, if we're just using, we're using men, um, I was going to say the Colin Farrell character in The Beguiled. Another, another oh, mushroom-based yeah. uh, movie. Um, yeah. And, and it's Colin Farrell, so I mean, mm-hmm. like, we could hang out before I killed him. <laughs> uh, I'm struggling with this. I'm totally blanking. Sorry. What? I mean, let's see. Let's. Yeah, I will. I will jump in, and I will say <laughs> mainly because my hangups are mostly political right now. But I will say Hitler as there a villain from the 
darkest hour and you figure out where I'm going with that. I, I thought you were going to say the not, I thought you were going to say the not yeah. Nazis from uh, Wonder Woman. Yes, that too. Yeah. Okay, that's very good. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. Lauren, do you have one? I really do not have one. Like, I'm Lauren totally likes the villains. I, I think we got so. a pretty good, good trio right there. Yeah. I generally, yeah, I generally enjoy it. I was, I was this close to just like arbitrarily shouting out Killmonger, then I realized shit, A, it's 2018, and B, <laughs> I couldn't kill. No, I couldn't. I'd just no. be like, you know what? I'm totally prepared for our new Overlord, okay? <laughs> you don't have to kill him, you just have to try to defeat him. Oh, okay, I would be like doing girl slaps. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Um, I, I, I'm I'm sitting there with that question. I'm sitting there going, God, what movies came out in 2017? Yeah, <laughs> oh my god! I mean, racism in in three the billboard in three billboards. Okay, that would be the... just like racism. I will fight racism. Yes, yes. There you I'm go. surprised no one said Sam Rockwell's character in three. Billboards. I try to forget that movie exists. Um, yes. Yeah. So let's move on to our review. Um, this is actually a special treat. Because all four of us saw this movie opening week. Yay! Um, we are talking about Annihilation. It is the follow-up to Alex Garland's directorial debut, Ex Machina. Uh, it stars Natalie Portman, Gina Rodriguez, Jennifer Jason Lee, Tessa Thompson, and Oscar Isaac. Uh, and, and Tuva Devotny. Yes, that's right. I always, I always forget her because her character's not in the book. Um, so, <laughs> so it is uh, based on Jeff Vandermeer, the first of his uh, trilogy of novels known as The Southern Reach. And it involves an all-female expedition uh, of military women who go into this mysterious uh, stretch of land known as the Shimmer that a bunch of people have gone into but have never come out, except for Oscar Isaac because he's Oscar Isaac and he can, like, literally best anything except for all those movies where he's died um so <laughs> so natalie portman who plays his wife has to figure out what uh is had gone on with him so that she can she so she can save him i mean really that's what it boils down to i'm sorry so this was supposed to come out last year but there were rumors that there were really bad test experiences so it got pushed to uh this weekend right now as of saturday when we're recording i think it's only at 3.46 million um, which is not great. Um, and Netflix has er, picked up this uh, film for international distribution. So hopefully the... the well, you got to remember two things. It's a quirky movie right. that is not going to appeal to a mass audience. Yes. And Black Panther's only in week two. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. so that's, that's a good jumping off point. Um, what did we all know about this movie before we saw it? What do we think about Alex Garland before we saw it? And what do we, what did we think about this? I really liked um, Alex Garland's previous work. I mean, his only other film that he's directed was Ex Machina, right. he, which he was also got nominated for two Oscars and won one of them. But he also wrote Twenty Eight Days Later, which I love, and he wrote Sunshine, which I love. So I was already a fan of his before this came along. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, I yeah. I'm an I love Ex Machina. Ex Machina was in my top five, I think, the year it came out. It was not my number one. It was my number two. I forget what else came out that year. Um, but but um, I really enjoyed it. Is that the year Creed came out? I'm gonna, It's going to bother me. What yeah, else? it was Force Awakens, The Revenant, Spotlight. No, none of those were my number one. <laughs> I, I will remember this off air, and then I will, yeah, I will declare it. Um, but... I love Ex Machina. I, I watched that movie probably more than is is good because I just I love noticing little things. It has nothing to do with Oscar Isaac dancing. Um, yeah, right. Uh, but 
right, but and we know why Kim watches it too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. If, if he's there too. Um, so mm-hmm. I, this was my most anticipated movie last year. I I read the book and I was like, oh god, this is gonna be weird. Um, and then this was my most anticipated movie of the year when we did our most anticipated. And I am a bit muted on it. Um, I probably went in with far more information than I should have had because I read the book and I also was was given a script. Um, I cannot tell you how far into the shooting process that was, but I can tell you that it was probably a shooting script because about 97% of what I read was in this finished product. So I already knew what was going to bother me. And I, I'm sure that colored my perspective of the film. Um, I had issues with this. I, I think some of the changes were necessary, but I also felt that they kind of ruined what made the story so intriguing. This was the only time I would say I, I would have preferred less Oscar Isaac in a movie. Um, but I loved Gina Rodriguez. I loved Natalie Portman. I loved, I loved all the women. And when the movie is good, it's great. When the movie is just trying to do its own thing I'm like I appreciate it but I don't know if I necessarily enjoy it overall I liked it but I I wanted to love it I should have loved this movie and I I don't know where they could have fixed I mean they could have made some fixes but I I think a lot of it was just stuff that I knew they would have had to change this is going to be a hard sell for audience as it is so um Kim what did you what do you think about Garland as a director and what did you think about this Okay, well, I am, I knew nothing about the project going into it. I knew cast, and I knew kind of what was going on here. Other than that, had no background to it at all. Garland, as was just pointed out, uh, loved, loved, loved Ex Machina. Um, I, everybody can pretty much assume Donald Gleason brought me there, and that was the reason <laughs> I watched and fell in love with him even more throughout that film. And it was probably one of my top of 2015 as well. Um, in terms of, are we are we giving thoughts now? Yeah, just or are we overall going thoughts. Category? I mean, we'll break it down in a second, but just like in general, what do you think? I my response to the press agent when I came out was, I'm not sure what I just watched, but I loved it, <laughs> and I think that sums up my feelings on it really well. And yeah. I'm Lauren. Well, I'm somewhere, but be- oh, I, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, we'll we'll get into nitty gritty in a second. Um, Okay. Because I know we have a lot to talk about, and I, I don't want this to be, like, hell on earth for you to edit. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Lauren, yeah. what, did, what did you think about? What do you think about Garland? What did you think about this? Uh, well, Ex Machina is a great film. Um, I didn't realize that Garland had also written Sunshine and 28 Days Later, but both very strong films. Um, okay. <laughs> so my feelings about Annihilation are it's a great cast, it is very pretty, like the a lot of just the images that he conjures are brilliant and fascinating and very different. Um, so I really liked that. The cinematography was great. Uh, you know that as soon as I begin praising cinematography first off, that that means that there's a problem with the film for me. I was really underwhelmed by the plot. Um, the setup is fine. I think that, you know, okay, we're going to go into the shimmer and it's we don't know what we're going to find there. People, no one else has come out except this one guy, and he's in massive organ failure. It, it's, I think that it completely dropped the ball. Like, completely. I, uh, my first reaction when I came out of the film was that it was really pedestrian. And that's still, the more that I think about it, that's, that's the same reaction that I'm having. 
the yeah, I don't. I won't go into spoilers, but well, the, I, I, the I mean, way that we're gonna go into spoilers eventually. So I'll, the, I, I'll just, but I'll just say in general, the way that many of the characters were treated, other than Natalie Portman's character, I really wanted more of them. And I know that it's being told through her perspective, but we still did not really get any sense of any of these characters. And it's a shame because you've got great actresses there, you've got great performances for what they have, but. There's, there's so, there's so one note in so many ways. The final act, I thought, I sitting there watching, and I was just like, okay, so I could have basically watched a double bill of two thousand one and like part of Solaris, and I would have had a more profound film. I think that for what the film is trying to do and for what the film is claiming to do, it is incredibly superficial, and needs a lot more narrative and thematic depth than what it actually had. You know, people are, are talking about, oh, this is a mind fuck. Oh, this was so shocking. Just, and, and my, I'm, I'm sorry, my reaction is you, you don't watch enough movies. If that's your response to this film, you have not seen m- many movies. So we're gonna get into spoilers. If you don't wanna know our, our thoughts, just fast forward to the end because I, I do think it's impossible to talk about this movie with not, without spoiling it. Um, I'll put a timestamp on when to forward to. There, that's why we have Karen doing all the technical stuff. She thinks of these <laughs> things. So I want to talk about, yeah, let's let's talk about some things that were at least interesting to talk about and or might have bothered us. I, okay, let's just get out of the way. I need to talk about the whole Oscar Isaacness of this movie. Um, I knew when he was cast I was going to have a problem because he, in the book, I can tell you right out, his character dies in the beginning. Like, he comes back, they have that interaction in the kitchen, and then he dies. Um, he's not the only one that comes back. There are several of them that come back, and they all die. Um, of, like, cancer, I think it is. So, knowing that his character was probably gonna be in it significantly, because you're not paying Oscar Isaac money to not use him, unless you're George Clooney, um, I was like, okay, well then, that negates the ending of the movie, that's gonna negate a lot of issues that are presented in the book. I get that you need to give Natalie Portman stakes, but when the stakes are that she needs to figure out what's happening because she quote-unquote owes him for cheating on him, I was very confused because we're given snippets of their relationship, and Jennifer Jason Lee's character has this big speech about self-sabotage and how we self-sabotage a happy marriage. And I'm sitting there thinking, is it though? Because the snippets that were given into their relationship are very small and selective and nondescript. So there's really never any depth to whether, they're re- whether what we're seeing is a facade, whether what we're seeing is real, whether what we're seeing is perspective we know that both of these people are closed off they don't talk to each other but i mean you need more to a relationship than like that um i mean they're very cute together when they're cute together but i was i needed more especially because the ending of the movie is reliant on making the circle on their marriage and making this I think where the Solaris comparisons come into play is that it's this is really just like a metaphor about a relationship, which I, I needed more to, to actually care. I don't know how everybody yeah. else felt about that. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. And in, and in fact, we find out about her affair so late, like tr- truly because they're, again, it's those little moments, those little flashes of flashback. 
I guess that they're flashback um, or memory or whatever it is. Uh, and, and then it's just like, oh, she's having an affair with this guy who's also married and they have that, they have a weird scene together. Um, but again, yeah, it's, it's very emotionless. All of it is very emotionless. Um, so the idea that like the, that this whole thing is she, she's doing, she's going into the shimmer because she owes her husband because she cheated on him. I was like, okay, but I don't have a feeling for any, I don't have a feeling for this triangle. I don't have a feeling for the relationship that they have from what we see of them. They seem fairly happy, but we don't, as you point out, we don't see that much of them. But this is enough to inspire you to, to first of all, inspire him to go on what is described as a suicide mission. He's probably not going to come out. And it's enough to inspire her to be like, to feel so guilty that she's got to go in in order to, to find some way to save him. Though that's a big question as to what that'll be. Right. And I, and I think yeah, that... Well, oh, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I come into this, I enjoyed the movie a lot. I'm somewhere between like and love. I'm not I'm not fully into like, wow, I love this so much, but I also really liked it a lot. Um, but one of the things that kept me from fully loving the film had to do a lot with character motivation. And it's not just her and her reason for wanting for needing to come back oh, is yeah. because she owed him. It's because of the fact that you've got these four other women that are basically because mm -hmm. they're all childless and single become they're treated as expendable which is something that like almost every movie does that deals yeah. with women and someone needing to sacrifice or whatever and it drives me crazy i'm so tired of it you know it, and that's that's the one thing that just really just took me out of this movie and, was... and what bothered me i mean in the book she goes in for science literally like she, mm -hmm. she genuinely is interested and i would have preferred there's a scene where the Shepherd character, uh, the Tuba Novotny character, says, well, we're all damaged good. She's lost a daughter. Natalie Portman's character has quote-unquote lost a husband. Um, but the I would have much preferred had they been like the other two women, where you find out that, that Gina Rodriguez's character was an addict, and um, Tessa Thompson's character obviously had some sort of issues with self-harm. I would have liked more if they were flawed. You know, like, one's yeah. just an alcoholic and one has issues like then as opposed to we are damaged because we're barren single spinsters mm -hmm. <laughs> well and i i would i just wanted to jump in uh, it's the way i and initially what you just said kristen about how she goes in for science that was how i read it i mean i didn't throughout the film i never got the whole she owes him well, she does so, say so that, but, or, but I think I know where you're going, she, Kim, and I think I agree with you, so go on. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> now there's a lot of pressure on me to keep it going. Um, I just, I never got the feeling that she owed him. There, I, my one, how I continued feeling it throughout the film was that she needed to see it for herself. Mm -hmm. She need, you know, she, the whole beginning of the, their first conversation is trying to figure out what happened, and she can't you know, he has no idea. So she's going through this to figure out what happened to what, why would he go? What is going on? She needs to see this all and experience it for herself. Yeah. When she says she owes him for me, 
I my initial reaction when I was watching it wasn't that she owed it to him to try to save him, but just that she owed it to him to try to figure out what had happened to him. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's possible. Um, I think we all agree the other characters probably needed to have equal weight. Mm-hmm. I wanted yeah. more. Te- uh, the, the amount of Tessa Thompson there was an absolute She crime. literally I loved dies. everything she did, and I wanted more. She literally more. disappears off screen from the movie, and that's it. Like, we never really see her again. Um, I did really love, I think Gina Rodriguez, for me, was the MVP. Yes, I would She's agree. the loud, like, rational character, and if the Shimmer... She's the one who says what we're all yes, thinking. Yes, if the Shimmer yeah. is all about refracting our personalities... The, her her she's extremely rational and that devolves into like lunacy and I really liked her character again I wish that there had been more of these women because once the middle finally ramps up and things start happening they happen so quickly as a means of getting to the third act which is the hard sell of this movie I think yeah. the movie really tries to bait and switch you with oh we're gonna give you a terrifying fucking bear and then hopefully you'll be able to think that that's goodwill enough to carry you through to our third act, which is very, very 2001-y. Um, yeah. The person I thought... In sort of a... Oh, go on. In sort of a... Uh, in sort of a pastiche way. The 2000, that, that was one of the things that bothered me about that, was that it was this 2001-y idea but i was but again it's the a total lack of depth i i was just like this doesn't actually mean much this is just oh look we have these images that are very cinematically referential but we're also doing something slightly different with them and of course you would go into the gaping maw of the interior of this lighthouse where all this weird shit is happening why wouldn't you do that uh the film said the film just does not it doesn't set it up well it really doesn't um, and I did want to say one thing about the Gina Rodriguez character that I liked that, but I didn't buy it. And one of the reasons why I didn't buy her breakdown was because the film does not go into enough psychological detail right. about what is happening to these women. So in the first like part, when they go into the shimmer, they, uh, they mention that like they, they lose a couple of days or they think that they've lost a couple of days. And they don't know what had happened. So, so suddenly they're camping out and they're like, wait a minute, where are we? What's When did we set up on? these tents? When did we set up these tents? What's going on? Oh, how long have we been in here? Well, we've been in here for six days because that, that's the amount of rations that we have, that we've eaten. And, and so you've got this really wonderful element of time and of their perceptions and their hallucinations and what's hallucination and what's reality, what they're actually experiencing. And then nothing is made of that you... at all. The rest of the film just keeps on going in sort of a, a, a pretty straightforward chronology. If we're supposed to understand it as being like that there's a lot of uh, mixing up of time and stuff like that, it doesn't emphasize that. We don't actually really see that. And so when Gina Rodriguez has her massive breakdown and it's just like, are we the ones that are going crazy or are you the ones that are going crazy or am I crazy or is this all real? I was just like, well, no, obviously you're the one that's going crazy because we haven't had any other indication of anything else throughout the rest of this film. And you bring up my big issue with this movie that that, that they changed intentionally from the book. The book, the, the Ventress character, the Jennifer Jason Lee character, who I think gets the shortest shrift in this movie, 
goes in in the movie she goes in because you find out she has cancer but also because her whole thing is something she's godlike they go in and i watch that's what she says and really in the in the book the whole intent of them going into the shimmer was is to to have her act as the psychologist to chart how the members react to each other because if everybody's going crazy and killing each other she wants to document that um so there are things in the book where she'll like intentionally have code words to put them in these trances to make them sleep or to make them forget time to so that when they that would so that when they do wake See, that's up that's fascinating <laughs> so that when they do wake up they're like freaking out and so so you're questioning how much of this is government rigging of the game to make this argument that the shimmer and area x is dangerous um and i really i needed that because it, a it makes the ventress character interesting and it makes her uh, an antagonist that they have to overcome and it also leads to this question of is she manipulating them are they manipulating themselves you need that and the fact that we lose that you're taking out a key plot point that's interesting and you're taking out a key character i don't know yeah, i don't know I, if anybody I, has any follow-up mm -hmm. for that <laughs> that would have been I would have loved that. That would have been really interesting. And actually, and I thought that that I thought that it was something like that. That that's the direction they were going when we had those first those initial missing days. Mm -hmm. um, that there's going to be a lot more psychological stuff going on. Uh, and and films have done that before. Of like, what is hallucination and what is reality? What am I actually seeing? What am I imagining? And meanwhile, all of this this entire film is filtered through a narrative that is the, the narrative of the, of the Natalie Portman character telling the story. So you've got that extra layer. And there's plenty that can be done with that. But it doesn't do it at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to go see it again. So, I mean, I... Maybe, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Maybe and I will it's very beautiful. Um, it, is, it is beautiful to see. I love the cinematography. Even when they're, like, examining these gross tumor things that are supposed to be nasty, they're gorgeous. Yeah, I like, love... <laughs> I love the creature design and the effects. Uh -huh. I don't know if those were practical or CGI, but whatever they were, they were fantastic. I think it was a combination. It was fantastic. It was utterly amazing. Yeah. Um, even yeah, the, uh, it's gorgeous. Well, I'm, I am sitting here struggling because I enjoyed every minute of this I, movie. I mean, and but I, for the life of me, am having trouble justifying it, especially with these well, you know. <laughs> I told uh, somebody. None of these issues that you guys are bringing up particularly bothered me, which I found, you know, that maybe the characters were such a throwaway. It's like that scene where she discusses how they're all damaged goods just felt tacked on. You know, it's. I would, but I mean, thinking about it, I would have definitely have preferred that psychological angle if they would have kept, because I mean, I'll get hate mail for saying this, I'm sure. I've never been a big Jay's, Jennifer Jason Lee fan. How but that, dare that you? I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> I will say. I was I'm definitely in the minority, but I, that character felt like there was supposed to be something. I, I was going to say, I feel like there's a lot of deleted scenes in this movie. Um that's yeah, it, yeah the, mm -hmm. the script somebody got their hands on that yeah, script I, I will say i like the beginning in the middle i like that i thought it started out very strong um and i mean i the mind fuck thing i don't well, it's mind fuck to the level that everybody thought inception was a mind fuck i didn't i had very visceral reactions during the film yeah what's really driving me crazy is how people are comparing this this experience not the movie but the experience to watching mother and i'm like um no 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 i, no, I compared, no, this, no, I compared no. this to another aronofsky movie i compared this to the fountain 
Yeah. Uh, it's similar, yeah. Very similar. similar element. I didn't even think Aronofsky because I hate Aronofsky and I actually enjoy I, I will this. say <laughs> the ending the ending was about what I expected. Um because the ending of the book and the ending of the script I read, I I'm getting the sneaking suspicion this ending was a reshoot. Um because the book ends with Natalie Portman's character getting in the boat on the coast and deciding that she's just gonna stay. In the really? Shimmer, yeah. Okay. The the script I read's ending was you were never clear if what came back was Natalie Portman or the humanoid. And so I think the end of the script when he asks her, Are you Lena? You're the movie just ends. You're not supposed to know whether it is or not. Um the ending in the movie, I, I looked at my friend, I was like so what we're saying is, is if Donald Gleason's living in the attic per Bla- uh, Black Mirror, you know, we can just, like, remake an Oscar Isaac. We can just start, like, giving them out, like, lollipops to everybody. And I am totally <laughs> cool with this. Um, I felt it was a little trite. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have seen a first draft because some of these changes that we're mentioning, a lot of this reeks of studio note changes. I, I mm-hmm. would believe that. I yeah. would definitely believe that. Um, I mean, I heard the test screening did not go well at all for this movie. Um, and, and that was multiple. I heard multiple things about screenings. They screened this a lot. Um, so yeah, it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. But I think we all agree it's worth seeing. I just, yeah, I just want to go back yeah, really definitely. quickly on the visual effects and just point out that two of the people who won the Oscar for visual effects for Ex Machina worked on the visual effects for this one. Oh, and the reason yeah. that I think that that matters is not only because Ex Machina won the Oscar for best visual effects, it beat The Revenant, which had an amazing bear attack that this one beats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, and it beat um, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and it beat Mad Max, Fury Road, so... I mean, this team, they know what they're doing when it comes to I think to visuals, we all agree, so. go see it. Support yeah, sci-fi. Go see it, make your own mind. <laughs> yeah, support original sci-fi. Go for the, the awesome, like, kick-ass ladies, for the most part. Stay yeah. for the really shitty Oscar Isaac Southern accent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was he trying Southern? I didn't yeah, even hear it was that as Southern. Southern. At the end, at the end. No, I, no, I, I totally I did, yeah. I totally did. My friend looked and, at me, she's like, what is he doing? I'm, she, I'm like... Dude, I thought we all realized the man can't do an accent to save his soul. Okay, why? Why? <laughs> See, I was more fixated, and this is terrible and objectification-y of me to say, I was more focused on how soft he looked uh, in the movie. Yeah. I was like, oh, I will oh. say, <laughs> I will, my friend looked at me and she was like, okay, so movie aside, like, where does this rank on the Oscar isaac scale of, like, all your things? And I was like, well, it's definitely not, like, top five. But he's so goddamn adorable. I, I, we were all talking about my Doctor Doolittle train of thought. I literally said to my friend, "This is my th- how my thought process works." I was like, "The man could conjure up adorable chemistry with a turkey. He should play Doctor Doolittle." <laughs> oh dear lord! <laughs> so yeah, um, it worked. I mean, it um, worked for the most part for me. But you know, I'm me. And so. by the way, watch this to enjoy the fact that like no men. No white dudes have yeah. speaking parts. Yes. <laughs> I think there's one that has a small line, but that's and it. And then, like, Natalie yes. Portman literally, I will say that when she tells the, the guy that she's been been banging that, like, she doesn't really like him. He should go away. I was like, <laughs> yes, girl. Yes. yes. Yes, I did like that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, my theater was more, like, shock. Like, like, what a bitch. Like, I was like, no, 
no. You know what? Yeah. Just like, woo. So, yep. yeah. Um, that's our thoughts on Annihilation. You can tell us what you think about them. Uh, you can email. Do we have an email that we want to share? I know we said we have can. What is? Do we check it? Um, I have it go to my phone. So if someone sends okay. anything, I do okay. see it. So, so what? So we we do have email. If you want to email us your thoughts, you can send them to where Karen. CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. Um, you can also check us out via Twitter at CitizenDamePod. We are on there. You can download the episodes uh, directly from either CitizenDame.podbean.com. Stitcher Radio or iTunes. Um, if you are on iTunes and you like us, please leave us a rating. Uh, five stars would be wonderful. Uh, if you like us even more, you can leave us a review and share your thoughts. Um, so you can do all of that there. You can also check us out on our individual uh, websites, Twitters. I am always at journeys underscore film. Uh, Karen, where can people find you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And Lauren? I am at LH Business. And Kimberly? At KPierce624. Um, and by the time this comes out, we will be prepping for the Oscars. But uh, does anybody else have anything on tap this week? I actually have no screenings this week. I'm very blue. I have no screenings because I have 10 more Oscar movies to see before next Sunday. But Ooh. I am doing an interview for Citizen Dame on Thursday. <gasps> Do you guys want me to say who it is? Um, no, we're going to... Tell us off air. We'll save this as a surprise. No, you already know. I, well, I already know. Oh, what maybe you don't. Me? Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, now, right. now, yeah. Now we just need to have people come back next week so they can hear. Oh, yeah. Ooh. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so, so yeah. There, Very exciting. That. Um, so, yeah, you can uh, contact us, and we will have... Also, be sure to check out our website, citizendamepod.com. We do our Citizen Dame top fives every week. Um, I don't know what our top five is as of right now, because we haven't thought of one. Uh, head over to our website for our weekly Citizen Dame five this week. In honor of Annihilation, we are talking about our favorite creature feature, monster movie, what have you. Honestly, I probably could have just done an Oscar Isaac 5 and it would have been the same thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, we always have uh, new content over there, so be sure to have that bookmarked as well. So, it's going to close out this uh, always long episode of Citizen Dame. <laughs> I am Kristen here with Karen, Kimberly, and Lauren, and we will see you all next week. Hi friends! Did you know the Citizen Dame podcast is now on Patreon? For as little as $1 per month, you can help us in our mission to bring film criticism and feminism to the masses. Your contributions will help us produce even more of the content you love, and to make the podcast accessible to an even bigger audience, including to the hearing impaired. Perks include Twitter shoutouts, the chance to choose a topic for our weekly Citizen Dame 5, plus exclusive content including interviews and behind-the-scenes audio. Plus, if we reach our first goal this week, Kristen Lopez will list her 50 favorite movie coats, and Karen Peterson will live-tweet her first-ever viewing of the Tom Cruise classic, Eyes Wide Shut. To support the show, go to patreon.com slash citizendame. Thanks! We have to go back. We have to go back now. She's right. I, I really don't know how much more right she has to be. Okay. And I agree with you. We should go back. Good. Okay, great. There we go. Okay, so the three of us can just Hold pack on up a minute. Our... Hold on. We should go back, yes, but it took us, what, six days to get here? And the coast is two days away. You're saying that we get out by going deeper in? Yeah, if you like, yeah. Like? No, I don't like. This isn't some tactic to get us to the lighthouse, is it? I believe that the coast is the best route out. Okay?